0: All right, it's great to see you again tonight. Thank you, Brother Sean, for that song. And uh, wow, we've been redeemed, y'all. Amen. And so we're not who we used to be. What an incredible, incredible reality. Uh, Over the last several nights, uh, we have been talking from, basically, we, we, we launched from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, where Jesus and the Father are having a conversation before Jesus came into Bethlehem. And uh, what Jesus is saying is that a body had been prepared for him. And it was through that body, you can see at the end of verse 7, that he was to come to this earth and to carry out the will of the Father. But what we've been talking about is that that was just the beginning Of God's plan to use a body for the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1 in verse 9 Jesus ascended back to the Father's right hand and what was happening on the earth is God was in the midst of preparing another body for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23 identify that body that the Lord was preparing. It identifies that body as the church. And so the premise we've been working from, of course, is the fact that we actually have His DNA. He is our living head. We are his body. And listen now, the same genetic code that Christ manifested through his individual physical body, the body of Christ, is the same spiritual genetic code that God intends to be manifested now through this corporate spiritual body. Of Christ, Now, God wants to put His glory and all of His attributes on display through us. And so we've been looking at the qualities that Christ, or the attributes that Christ manifested through His physical body, to see how we then are to manifest that same attribute, through this corporate spiritual body, and what we've been talking about is once we see how it is that He has intended for us to manifest that quality, that becomes what we must embrace an uncompromising priority toward. We, uh, those of us that are in ministry, uh, in terms, we're all in ministry. Uh, But those of us that are pastoring, we talk a lot about our philosophy of ministry uh, when pastors get together. What are the core values that your church embraces? And really what we're trying to do is get our heads wrapped around the fact that we don't have the luxury to decide that for ourselves. It's dictated to us because of who we are as the body of Christ. And so, over the course of the last several nights, we looked at priority number one. This is in your notes. Because Christ is the Word of God, and now He wants to manifest the Word of God in this body, we must embrace an uncompromising priority on expository preaching. We saw that's where this whole thing of the Word of God being displayed in the body of Christ That's where it begins. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16. And and then last night we looked at priority number two and number three. Because Christ is the image of God we must embrace an uncompromising priority on biblical discipleship. And again if you weren't here I would encourage you to go back and just see how that actually connects. And then priority number three, because Christ is the power of God, we must embrace an uncompromising priority on global missions. And now tonight we're going to look at the fourth and fifth attribute of Christ and see how that translates into the priorities that we as a local church must embrace. Priority number four, because Christ is the life of God, We must embrace an uncompromising priority on exponential reproduction. On exponential reproduction. All right, now so let me take just a couple of minutes to help us to connect those dots by biblically establishing the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to demonstrate, to manifest, to reveal to the world The life of God. I'm calling this section in your notes, God's life in the physical body of Christ. And and do you remember what Jesus said? This is a pretty familiar verse to all of us, I think. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the what? and the life and i know that this probably goes without saying but i'll say it anyway notice that jesus didn't say that the teachings of christianity are the way and the truth and the life and and hey i'm all about the teachings of christianity i think they're wonderful i think they're powerful but listen y'all We aren't Christians because of Christ's teaching. We're Christians because of Christ's person. We are Christians not simply because of what Jesus said. We're Christians because of who Jesus was. We're Christians because He was the way, and He was the life, and He was the the truth. He is all of those things. And that's why he goes on in the verse to say, no man cometh unto the Father but by what? But by me. You remember that John begins his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 4 saying that in him, that is Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. I think we understand that by the time the Lord Jesus Christ arrived here after 4,000 years of darkness since sin entered into the world, here comes the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him was not the spiritual death in Adam, but spiritual life. In the Lord Jesus Christ, He came possessing the light of men because the world had been cast into utter darkness. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 26, For as the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son, that is, in His earthly body, to have life. In himself, in John chapter 11 and verse 25, it says, Jesus said unto her, and that, of course, was Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. John came to the end of his life, and he wrote in First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we've studied, and our hands have handled, and watch what he calls Christ here, of the word, of life. For the life was manifested. And of course what he's just described in verse 1, Hello? Did we not have that one? Okay, you guys have memorized it, I'm sure. <laughs> but what he has just described in verse 1 is what Christ did through his earthly body and how we could reach out and touch him, we could see him, we could gaze up upon him. And he says, for that life was manifested, we have seen it, And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. And again, we can go to any number of places. I'm 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 just trying to make sure that you're not thinking that I invented this quality that he's referring to here. John closes out his first epistle, still talking about it. He says in chapter 5 and verse 11, there it is, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And he didn't just pull it out of thin air. John says, And this life is in his Son. So there's no doubt about it. Christ came to this earth in the body of Christ to manifest to the world the life of God. And so by now in our week, I hope that you've grown to expect that if that's who Christ was in his physical body, then that is who he has called us to be and made us to be as his spiritual body, the church. And so let's take a couple of minutes to look at God's life in the spiritual body of Christ because you see, the, the, the moment you and I called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, what the Bible teaches is that we were placed in Christ. And we were placed into His body, the church, in, in a universal or a generic sense. And, but the point is, we became the very recipient of life, the life of God. Paul made that abundantly clear in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4 when he said, when Christ, watch now, not who gave us life shall appear. When Christ who, would you say it? is our life. Listen, y'all. Just like we've been seeing every night, man. These attributes that Christ possessed, these are the attributes that He has entrusted to us so that we can manifest these to the world. And listen, y'all. Tonight, and what a beautiful song (laughs) for us to to get our heads wrapped around this thing, we now have the life of God in us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We received life because we received Christ. And His life is now in us. And, And yet I think we would all agree that the biblical reality is His life isn't always manifested through this body. How about yours? And his life isn't always manifested through this corporate body, the the local church. And, And that's why Paul said what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10. And I don't have time to belabor this, so don't drift off on this. such a key, crucial verse in this whole subject what what he says to us in 2 Corinthians 4:10 is that we are always bearing about in the body talking about our physical body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made what manifest in our body You see, the life is in us. But in order for that life to be manifested in and through our body, we must bear in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Can you get there? The way that it... Uh, that I get my head wrapped around it is this, that the cross was the instrument of Christ's death that brought me life. And now that same cross is the instrument of my death that brings Him life. It's to be manifested that life through our dying, so that it's actually His life that is being manifested through us. Do you see that? But again, the point is, God now has us on this planet as the body of Christ to manifest to the world His life. But to see how us being the life of God actually translates into this uncompromising priority on exponential reproduction, let's let's take another minute to talk about God's life as it was intended to be manifested from the beginning. God's life as it was intended to be manifested from the beginning. Now you remember that last night, we looked at the first prophecy in Scripture, if you will, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, when God, within the Godhead, if you will, makes the declaration that He's going to make man. Okay, at this point, He's just talking about what He's going to do, and of course, that's why I'm calling it the first prophecy. And it says uh, that this prophecy was fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where Moses details for us just how it was that God actually did do that, that, how he made man, and it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. So get it, God took of the dust of the ground and of course from that dust he made the earthly tabernacle of that man or he made his physical body and into that physical body which was just a shell at that point God breathed into his nostrils his very life, God breathing his life into that man that word that is translated breath there in our King James Bible, if you'll take that word and just watch how it's translated through the Old Testament, it's translated spirit. And it says that man became then a living soul. That is, he became an eternal being, but this eternal being possessed the life of God, because he possessed the Spirit of God, making him, therefore, as we saw last night, a son of God. A son of God, listen to it, who was created to have an intimate, personal love relationship with the God who had created him And again, we talked about uh, this briefly last night, that God's intention through that man, as Genesis 1 and verse 28 goes on to tell us, God's intention for that man who bore his life, possessed his spirit, it was God's intention that through that man that he be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But man had this nagging problem, y'all. As Genesis 2 and verse 18 goes on to tell us, this little nagging problem that he had with fulfilling his commission was that he was alone. And in light of the commission to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, I I know that this isn't a biology class or anything like that, but he's going to have a doggone hard time of being fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth as a man by himself. And, And that's why, or one of the reasons in verse 18 that God saw that this was not going to be good. He's never going to be able to pull off his commission alone. You know what he needed? He needed a womb man. A womb man. One who was taken from his side, but she was different than him because she had a womb. A womb man. And God's intention... By his very own design was that, listen now, through the intimacy of their physical relationship, the first Adam with a bride who was called by his name, and God called their name Adam. And God's intention was that through the intimacy of their relationship physically, that they would bear fruit that they would have sons and daughters and those sons and daughters would grow to maturity and then they would marry and through the intimacy of their relationship with their bride, they would bear fruit until it began to multiply. And, And what I'm trying to get you to see is that God's plan was for this earth to be replenished through exponential reproduction. And as we saw last night, before man could even begin to get that process of exponential reproduction in operation, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, He makes a bad decision and sin enters into the world. And then because of that, rather than this world being replenished with sons and daughters of God who possess the life and image of God through exponential reproduction, according to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, the world was being exponentially reproduced What it was reproducing was spiritual death in Adam's likeness and in reproducing Adam's fallen image. This child was born spiritually dead and in Adam's fallen image. And it was that way, y'all, all through the Old Testament. But then we come into the New Testament, and again, one is born in Bethlehem, who has no earthly father. He is born of a virgin, and so he comes into this world, born, possessing the life of God and the image of of God and so he bears the title son of God and as we talked about last night not only does he bear the title son of God but according to first Corinthians chapter 15 verses 45 and 47 he has another title and that is the second Adam you remember that he's only the second person The second human, if you will, to possess God's life and God's image. And as the second Adam, God had a plan. And the plan was for the second Adam to take to himself a bride. And since in marriage the two become one flesh, we aren't just his bride, are we? As we've been talking about all week, man, we are his body. And the plan of God for those of us who have received his life and his image, listen now, is through the intimacy of our relationship with the second Adam. As his bride, God intends that we bear fruit that we as the bride and body of Christ reproduce spiritual offspring and the fruit that is born through the womb of our life as we have taken our one husband's name possessing his life and his image listen the fruit that is born was intended to be brought to maturity so that that fruit remains so that they, our spiritual offering our offspring, through the intimacy of their relationship with their one husband, that they too bear fruit that remains. And so you know what we find? I put this as the note in your study guide. God's plan through the second Adam is the same as it was through the first Adam. It was to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth. The first Adam was to fulfill his commission through physical reproduction. The second Adam is to fill his commission through spiritual reproduction, but the end result was intended to be the same, and that is exponential reproduction. Okay, now, just like we've done every night as we've begun to look at these attributes and see how that applies to us, we, we begin to ask ourselves, okay, so what does all that mean? What does that look like in real life? And so let's take just a couple of minutes to talk about marks of a local body that embodies the life of God. Okay, we've all got his life. And so what does it look like when we are genuinely as the body of Christ manifesting that? Number one, in a local body that embodies the life of God, would you listen, my brothers and sisters? Every person is focused on developing an intimate personal love relationship with Christ resulting in bearing fruit in in John chapter 15 in verse 16 Jesus says you have not chosen me but I have chosen you And, and be it known that he's not talking about how we come to salvation. He's talking about how we fulfill our mission. And he goes on, and have ordained you. I chose that this is going to be how you're going to bear fruit. And I've ordained that you should go and bring forth fruit. I I, I hope we can get our heads wrapped around that. That Every single one of us that have the life of God in us, God wants reproduction of his life by bearing spiritual offspring. But the way that we bear spiritual offspring is through the intimacy of our relationship with Christ. i I know we have younger people here. I'll be discreet in, in in this here here's a couple, and you know they've been married for a few years trying to have kids and they don't have kids, so they both go into the dock and they're running all kinds of tests to find out you know what what's the cause of them not being able to reproduce everything shows up just absolutely fine doesn't seem to be no any problem and so finally the doctor says um could i just ask you how often are you you guys share intimacy together and they have this shocked look on their face oh well we never do that And the doc is going to say, I think I might know the problem. (laughs) You're lacking intimacy in your relationship. I'm not trying to be cold blooded, y'all. But a lot of us think we have grown to maturity and we have an intimate personal love relationship with Christ. And He has chosen and ordained that we bear fruit. And I would just challenge you, challenge me, challenge all of us, that if we're not bearing fruit, that rather than passing it off as, well, that's not my gift, that maybe we, we do a little introspection and say, maybe... I'm not as intimate with Christ as I think I am. And, and maybe we can humble ourselves just a little bit and see that maybe even after everything that we know about God, that maybe we just still don't know Him. And if we could cry out to God with Paul, oh, that I may know Him. He has chosen and ordained, y'all, that we bear fruit. And it will happen. I promise you, my brothers and sisters, it will happen out of an intimate, personal love relationship with Christ. And, And that's why, in the midst of everything that you're learning and All of you that are being discipled and going through ministry tools and training and maybe you're a part of LFBI. But listen, man. It's not all to make you a Bible banger. (laughs) If it doesn't result in bearing fruit we're missing the point point. and how can we ever get to the place of exponential reproduction multiplication the way that god intended for it to happen if most of the people in the church have barren wombs listen it's going to take us all and so listen again man i'm not trying to put anybody on a guilt trip but man i would love for all of us To just say, oh, Lord, I want to be so intimate with you that I bear fruit. And then number two, in a local church body that embodies the life of God, every person then, this is after bearing fruit, every person then focuses on investing in their spiritual offspring so that they might bear fruit. So that that fruit remains. Just like John 15 and verse 16 says, that you bear fruit and that fruit remain. And if we'll invest in them, that fruit will remain. And again, they're not just going to show up for church. They're going to be reproducers. Notice the note when we're talking about investing in our spiritual fruit, we're talking about seeing our spiritual offspring or our spiritual fruit grow to spiritual maturity by them developing an intimate, personal love relationship with Christ that results in them bearing fruit. And may I, 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 may I just remind all of us But this is the end goal of discipleship. Again, not to make people walk around all studly because of what they know about the Bible and we just can't wait for you to make some kind of little mistake so I can show you what's up. What this is really all about is investing in other people So that they have that intimate relationship with Christ that causes them to bear fruit. So this whole thing of the body of Christ possessing the life of God comes down to this. This is the conclusion to priority number four. Remember, we still got one more to go. God has left us here. And this is going to be a little bit of a tongue twister but he has left us here to reproduce reproducers that will be a part of reproducing reproducing churches in other words churches that reproduce hello so that the world can be replenished and again i don't have time to exhaust the whole subject of church planting but the idea, and evidently it's time to turn the page, but, but listen, the idea is that everybody in the church is reproducing. And the life of God is being fully manifest in that body, and so the body starts reproducing other bodies. And now we've moved into multiplication, y'all. And this is the plan of God. But I'm telling you, at the rate we're going, y'all, we're getting killed. <laughs> and, and, and again, if I may be so bold as to attempt to diagnose the problem, it's because we think we're more intimate with Christ than we really are. So maybe at this conference, maybe this is a little come-to-Jesus moment where we just say, Lord, tomorrow I'm going to focus on having an intimate, personal love relationship with you. And I I hope that this next thing that we're going to look at may may help us. Here's priority number five. Because Christ is the glory of God... And again, the New Testament is full of references that teach us that. One of the verses we've talked about numerous times already is John chapter 1 and verse 14 that tells us that the eternal Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, That was in that body that had been prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made flesh. The eternal Word made flesh, dwelt among us, And man. John says, we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Listen, y'all. Christ is the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 is talking about Christ and says, who being the brightness of His Glory—that That is the Father's glory. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7 talks about Christ becoming flesh so that he was actually, what it says, he was made a little lower than the angels. But listen, even though he did, thou crownest him with glory and honor. And just in case we missed that, two verses later, in verse 9, he says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That's why he did that. Man, we see him crowned with glory. Honor, And I think you realize we could go on, again on and on with the verses that let us know that in the physical body of Christ, he was the very embodiment of the glory of God. And we could do the same thing with the verses that let us know that God's intention through the spiritual body of Christ is no different. The fact is, the body of Christ, y'all, is still on this planet and the intention is that that body, the church, manifest the glory of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul is admonishing us to walk worthy of God. Listen. Who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, Paul lets us know that, that when the Father called us by the gospel that Paul preached, that it was so we could obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ right now. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, Peter calls the Father the God of all. Grace, hallelujah to you, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Yeah, I, I wanted to take you to some other references, but but after that I think we get it, okay? And I'm submitting to you that that is the reason that we must embrace. An uncompromising priority on spirited worship. Because listen, y'all. Spirited worship is the vehicle through which we manifest the glory of God in the world. Ephesians 3.20 says, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. And so we must embrace an uncompromising priority on spirited worship. And when I'm talking about spirited worship, please don't think that I'm talking about lively or peppy music. Oh, they had some spirited worship there last night. Actually, I'm not talking about music at all. I'm talking about what Jesus said in John 4.23 that true worshipers do when He talked about us worshiping the Father. Do you have that, John 4.23? Okay. But you know this. We worship the Father how? How? In spirit, it's not a capital S. <laughs> in spirit and in truth. And so, uh, once again, we've got to ask ourselves, okay, from a biblical standpoint, what does that actually look like in the context of the local church? And, and so, let's, let's take some time to identify, once again, the marks of a local body that embodies the glory of God. And here's the first one. In a local body that embodies the glory of God, every person is connected in our perspective of worship. In other words, we're all connected in our understanding of what worship actually is. So could we we just clear off a little space tonight to talk about what the biblical perspective of worship actually is. Letter A in your notes. the The Old Testament Hebrew word for worship is that word. And, and listen, make sure that you hear this. I, I don't bring uh, up the Hebrew word because I think that you know, it's going to give us some nuance of meaning that we don't have and and couldn't get out of the preserved Word of God in our King James Bible. The reason I bring up the Hebrew word was so that we could actually see how this word was translated in our King James Bible, which serves as its own lexicon. <laughs> That's the beauty of this thing. Man, we can trace that word, and man, it's... We got everything we need (laughs) just without ever leaving our Bible. The the word is translated worship 99 times. But uh, catch this now. It's translated bow 31 times. Bow down 18 times. Obeisance 9 times. Reverence 5 times. Fall down. Three times. And so as we look at how God orchestrated the translation of that word, you know what we come away with? that This is in your notes. Worship is an attitude of our heart that produces an outward demonstration of reverence. Can you see that just from the words that are used to talk about this thing of worship. So maybe we could say it this way. Worship is our saying to God, Lord, I hold you in awe. Letter B, the, the New Testament Greek word for worship is that word, or whatever. I, I, I don't mess with the Greek. But the word is found 60 times in our King James Bible. And every time that you find it, it's always translated the same way. It's worship, okay? But just like we can go to the Old Testament uh, and we can look at the the usage of of the word, uh, what we come away with, and we can do this in the New Testament, just see how it's used. What we come away with is that worship is an expression of both the reverence and affection in our hearts toward the Lord. And maybe we could say it this way Worship is our saying to God, Lord, I love you. And then, letter C, the Old English word for worship is worth. Worthship, and it means to ascribe accurate worth to someone or something. And when we drill down just a little bit deeper, we find that it's declaring with our words and or demonstrating by our actions that for which we count the Lord worthy. And maybe we could say it this way, worship is our saying to God, Lord, you are worthy of my all. Amen. Amen. And then letter D, our Lord gives us an incredible, incredible perspective on worship in John chapter 4 and verse 23. We do have it this time. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And would you watch this, y'all? For the Father seeketh such. True worshipers. The Father seeketh such to worship him. And, and listen, my brothers and sisters, if we want to get a very humbling and yet biblical perspective concerning worship, just consider the fact that the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-everything God who needs nothing and needs no one actually seeks something from the likes of me and you. He's seeking our worship. Wow. And then letter E, our Lord also gives us an incredible perspective on worship. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. I know that this is a familiar passage, but could we take just a second to to read it? Matthew chapter 10 verses 38 to 42. Do we have that? I'm getting ready to worship. (laughs) Would you turn there with me? Luke chapter 10. Again, familiar story. But, oh my goodness, wow. So power-packed. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet. Okay. She's positioned herself as a worshiper. And heard his words. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, does thou not care that, thou, that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bitter therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary... Hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And could I just highlight out of that last verse, verse 42, five powerful things that we learn about worship from Luke chapter 10 and verse 42? The, the first one is this, y'all, you know, that worship is a choice. Jesus says to Martha in verse 42, Mary hath chosen that good part. And once again, can I just say to all of us in this room tonight it's not a matter of gifting, it's not a matter of our personality, it's not a matter of our shape, it is a matter of priority. We're all going to wake up tomorrow morning and we've got a choice. What are we going to do? Number two, worship is more important than service. Listen to what Jesus said to Martha again. Mary hath chosen that good part. And what he's saying is in contrast to the part that Martha had chosen. And he tells her, this is the good part. She's serving, and I'm all about serving. Hey, we need you. But he's trying to get us to see that our service flows out of our worship. Number three, worship is eternal. Jesus says to her, which shall not be taken away from her. Which kind of leads us to believe that our worship now is going to be the worship that we offer Him throughout all eternity. All that's happening right now, y'all, is we're just developing the capacity of worship that we're going to offer to Him. And it's going to be what we communicated to God with our lips and what we communicated to God with our life, what the Bible calls our conversation. Listen, through our conversation, we worship God with our lips. Through our conversation, our life, we worship God. And what we're all doing is developing a capacity for worship that's going to go with us on into eternity. He says, which shall not be taken away from her. Number four, worship is the main thing and the main spring. Jesus says to her, all in these 20 words, man, but one thing is needful one thing and again it's the main thing and you know we've got an old adage about the main thing but it's never been more true than with the subject of worship the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing and may first baptist church and all of the churches in the living faith may we never forget That the main thing, the one thing, is worship. It's also the main spring. Can I just, you know, I'm an old geezer now, and can I just tell you from an old geezer's perspective that a lot of times in Christianity we spend a lot of time polishing the face of the watch and oiling the gears and changing the band when the watch doesn't work because the main spring is broken. And Jesus is trying to get us to see here that worship is the main spring of the Christian life. And when it gets broke, y'all, everything else just becomes a bunch of worthless shenanigans. And then he shows us a fifth thing. Worship is necessary. Again, Jesus tells her, but one thing is needful. You know what, y'all? We all wake up every single day with a zillion and fifty things that we need to do. We need to cook breakfast. We need to pack the kids' lunches. We need to get them to school. We need to go to the store. We need to work out. We need to go to the office. (laughs) We need everything. And oh my goodness, if we could all just listen to Jesus tonight as He tries to tell us, you just think you need those. One thing is needful. Again, I'm not talking about a shirking responsibility. I'm just telling you, Jesus is trying to get us to see the priority that worship has. But one thing is needful, and that leads us to the last thing that I want you to see about worship. Now, there's another page at the end that I called an addendum, and if we're going to address the subject of worship and leave those things out, I I, I wouldn't be able to pillow my head at tonight, but. We're not going to talk about that tonight. It's just for your own personal Bible study and for you to have. But the second mark of a local body that embodies the glory of God is that every person is convinced of the priority of worship. And we just looked at the fact that from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, that letter A to Jesus, worship was the one thing. And, And he said as much. But I also want you to see that to Paul worship was the one thing. And I, I'm gonna have to cut to the chase because I do want to talk about letter C. But let me just talk to you about Paul. Paul talks in verse three of Philippians chapter three, and you might can skip ahead and get get to that. But what he says is that we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Did you find that? Which worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I had a lot of things I wanted to say about that, but he is talking about the fact that we are those who worship God in the Spirit. And again, we've already seen it. Jesus taught us this is the one thing and and would you go in the same passage in Philippians chapter three verses 13 and 14 brethren this is Paul speaking I count not myself to have apprehended I, I, I don't think I got it all together but this one thing I do hello this one thing I do Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I would submit to you that it's what he talked about in verse 3. The prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is our worship of him. That one thing that Jesus was trying to get us to see is needful. And then let her see. It was David's, to David, worship was the one thing. Okay, so now, now just track with me real, real quick. I'm not going to belabor all of this. It's going to come pretty quickly, but man, I, I, I want us to end on this note tonight. So work, work with me. I want you to look at what David said in Psalm 27 in verse 4. David said, One thing. Okay, Jesus talked about the one thing. Paul talked about the one thing. David's getting ready to talk about one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. Here's that one thing. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. And what we find here is that David's one thing was also worship. But what's interesting about what he says here is that David's one thing is expressed three ways in Psalm 27 and verse 4. It's described as dwelling in the house of the Lord, which has to do with the place of worship. And then number two, it's described as beholding the beauty of the Lord, which has to do with our perspective of worship. Seeing Him for who He is in all of his, his splendor and majesty and glory. And then it's described, number three, by inquiring in His temple, which has to do with the pursuit of worship. And, and what I want you to see, that David is trying to express to us, that worship, was David's passion. I mean, he's in pursuit of worship. He's inquiring in his temple. And I would submit to you that this is why David is the only man in Scripture that was ever referred to as the man after God's own heart. But I want you to notice, the man after God's own heart, I want you to notice his epitaph in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse first kings chapter 15 and verse 5 an epitaph is kind of like what you put on a tombstone it's your life summary okay 1 Kings 15:5 says David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life And, oh, would you please listen, my brothers and sisters, what it could have been and what it would have been if there would have been a period right there. (laughs) But instead of a period, it's a comma. And the verse goes on and says, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And, of course, you do remember that little matter, right? You know that little matter where first he took the man's wife and then he took the man's life? That little matter. Yes, listen, y'all. David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of his life, except for commit adultery and murder which just happened to be unpardonable sins in the Old Testament economy. There were no sacrifices that you could offer for adultery and for murder. (laughs) And man, after seeing David's one thing, in Psalm 27 and verse four, that was expressed three ways. Do you remember, dwelling in the house of the Lord, beholding the beauty of the Lord, and inquiring in His temple. And it gets real interesting when you find that when the Bible actually records David's downfall in Second Samuel chapter 11, verses one through three, you know what's interesting that it, too, is expressed three ways. Would you notice with me in verse 1 that at the time when kings go forth to battle, would you look at the end of verse 1, David tarried still at Jerusalem. And so listen, y'all, rather than dwelling in the Lord's house, what's he doing? He's dwelling in his own house. And verse 2 says, And it came to pass at even, evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And do you already see it coming? Rather than beholding the beauty of the Lord... He's beholding the beauty of a woman. And check out verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And rather than inquiring in the Lord's temple, he's inquiring about the woman's temple. Her body. And I think that there's a key lesson to learn from the man after God's own heart and that is this that when worship ceases to be our one thing and it simply becomes a thing something or no thing we put ourselves in an incredible incredibly vulnerable position to make sinful choices that will affect us for the rest of our lives. And if you could ask David about that, he'd probably want to put an exclamation point on the end of that. And I'm saying to you tonight, my brothers and sisters, that because Christ is the glory of God, as those now who comprise His body, we must embrace an unkindness compromising passion and pursuit and priority on spirited worship. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we recognize tonight that this thing of the body of Christ is certainly bigger than than I think we ever imagined, especially when we recognize that the attributes that you displayed through your body are the attributes that we now are to display through the church, the body of Christ. And so, Lord, I, I pray that the two things that we've talked about tonight, reproducing, reproducers that are a part of reproducing, reproducing churches, That it will be a passion and a priority for us. And that we will allow ourselves to be brought back to the one thing of worship.